Hey everyone, my name is Andrew Vela and I'm the project specialist for the Dallas Film Commission and proud producer of the Dallas Film Podcast. With me, I have our Dallas Film Commissioner, Tony Armour. And for today's episode, we have a really exciting guest, Oren Soffer. Oren is the co-DP behind this year's most talked about sci-fi film, alongside Greg Frazier and directed by Gareth Edwards, the creator. Oren grew up between the United States and Israel, nurturing hobbies in painting and photography, building Legos, and vicariously watching movies. These activities laid the groundwork for what would eventually become a love of cinematography and a passion for crafting bold cinematic imagery. He has also shot multiple award-winning short films, including Opera of Cruelty, which won a Student Academy Award at CU Soon, which won the Audience Award at the Palm Springs International Short Fest, before subsequently premiering on Short of the Week and receiving a Vimeo staff pick. Oren has also shot hundreds of commercials and music videos for a variety of clients, including Nike, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, HBO, Foot Locker, Grey Goose Vodka, Doritos, and many more. We are so excited to be sitting down with Oren for this episode, and we hope you enjoy. Yeah, hi guys. Uh, I'm Oren. Great to chat with you. So happy to be here. Uh, And I'm excited to talk about the creator, about myself, about life, about you know what I had for breakfast, whatever we want to talk about, I'm I'm in. <laughs> no, so we're yeah we're excited we're excited to have you on. And Andrew and I, of course, went and saw the creator. Uh, I yep. wanted to see it anyways, but it was a perfect excuse to see it now before yep. it disappeared from theaters. Since the film just came out two weeks ago now, right? Um, two weeks ago, as of this yeah. recording, and uh, you know I really love the film. I can see why yeah. everyone is talking about it so much. Yeah. So can you talk about a little bit to start things off about your experience on joining the film? Because I know Greg Frazier was originally supposed to shoot it and then he had some complications with Dune or not complications, but scheduling conflicts. And so (laughs) why don't you talk a little bit about uh, those early discussions and joining the film and how it was pitched to you? Yeah, complications uh, uh, that that shall not be detailed um, (laughs) and we'll leave it mysterious. No, no. Uh, Yeah, the actual story is a little a little more kind of shoe leathery and less interesting than than it seems from the outset but essentially uh greg had been working on the project with gareth edwards the director for a number of years they of course worked together on rogue one star wars story and uh, really hit it off and i think had been starting to have conversations even during that movie um about the sort of inefficiencies of big budget filmmaking how can we do things a little bit better, a little bit different next time? Like, how do we change things up? And uh, the the genesis of this project kind of came about. I think it the, the germ of the idea of the imagery had been in Gareth's mind for quite a while, but the genesis of the uh, approach, the filmmaking approach, started during and after Rogue One in conversations between him and Greg. So they had been sort of on and off prepping this project and thinking about it and imagining it for a number of years before it ever became a concrete reality. Cut to many years later, um, seven years, uh, or I guess six. The project is now taking shape and it has shoot dates. COVID, pandemic, everything caused a bunch of delays uh, and scheduling became a moving target. Uh, especially as it was always designated to be shot in Southeast Asia. And the navigating the morass of 
lockdowns, isolations, restrictions, like all the different kind of logistical limitations at that time, uh, delayed the start date to a point where Greg no longer became available to work on the film in person full time because of his obligations to Dune Part 2, which was starting prep in early 2022, uh, which is when we were slated to start filming. So uh, earlier in 2021, uh, Greg reached out to me in October and proposed this sort of collaboration, like hybrid cinematographer approach where we would both receive co-cinematography credit. Greg would stay on board the project as more of a sort of big picture um kind of supervising uh it's hard to find an exact word for it but basically the dp um abroad <laughs> and then i would be the dp uh on the ground uh essentially because greg would be prepping dune in london los angeles and and scouting locations and that kind of thing but he was still going to be very involved in the project heavily involved um if just not overseeing the day-to-day -day logistics, that would be my job. But um, working together with him and with Gre uh, with Gareth would be sort of a part of the process between the three of us. And that's pretty much what ended up happening. Uh, I had had a prior relationship with with uh, with Greg. Been very fortunate to be able to call him uh, um, a mentor and and um, somebody who's has taken an interest in my work. So yeah, it was it was a great honor and and kind of a really crazy phone call to receive. But, um, yeah, I I, I signed up pretty much immediately. I was like, count well, me in. Yeah. Sounds like sounds like a crazy adventure. How could you say no? So was it you know really Gareth and Greg sort of developed you know in advance of you coming on board? This is what we want the the visual look, the visual style to be, and then you know, it's your job to execute that, but at the same time, you're having input into that. And so like, how much input do you have then, you know, once they've determined this is what, the, you know, this is kind of what we want, how much input do you then have to make adjustments and change and say, you know what, I think this would be great if we did this way. Talk a little bit about, you know, your influence then on the project after they had been talking about it for so long. Yeah, it was, you know, the conversations between them were really focused on how we were going to make the project, not necessarily what it was going to look like um on a on a minutia level of you know specific cinematography ideas specific lighting approaches or anything like that i i think on a bigger scale gareth as a director is just one of the most prepared and kind of visionary people that that i've ever worked with and he had a really solid idea of what the film was going to look like probably before Greg even came on board. Like Gareth is just one of the most visually thinking directors that that I've ever encountered. And so he's probably had imagery from this film in his mind for decades. Like it predates his film career, like his filmmaking career that he's already have images. And, and so, so I think from a visual standpoint, we were really going off of Gareth's lead more than anything. Like he came in, I mean, when I came on board the project, he had sent me, in addition to the script, I got a hundred pages of concept art. I got a ton of reference imagery, like just the most prepared pre-production package you've ever seen. And so like the imagery and the vision, the visuals of the film were pretty vivid, like even just from the script and from the concept art and all of that. 
So that was a really interesting process to kind of step into that because I had never experienced that level of of preparedness before from a director and and that solid a vision typically uh now I've only worked in in indie films prior to this one so typically on, on indie films the process of honing the visuals is a lot more like kind of chiseling away at at marble with the director and we're both kind of chipping away at this slab of marble until we kind of find the visual look of a film. And that happens during pre-production where we work together on shot lists and stuff like that. That didn't happen on this, on this project. It's, it was kind of like stepping into um, a, a, a sculpting studio and there's already this like beautiful marble statue and it's still rough. It's really, it's rough around the edges. It's not polished, but there's a really great shape. And then we're handed these tools and it's sort of like, all right, polish it. And, and it's like, but there's already this beautiful statue to work with. Like it's, 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 it's just a different, it was a different um, approach and it became a, lo a lot more about stepping into Greg and Gareth's conversations about the filmmaking approach, which was a huge component of the movie. Uh, and it, and it inspired and influenced the look of the film quite a bit. Like the two were very intrinsically entwined the way that we made the film, the way that we shot it, and the way that we wanted it to look and feel were connected. So it was really stepping into those conversations. And, and like I'd mentioned, Greg and Gareth had been having them for years. And then as things started ramping up more actively for pre-production, this was in the fall of 2021. Uh, yeah, we would basically just talk every day on, on Zoom like this and uh, um, look through reference images, discuss um specifics and start to really hone in on what we needed to do and what we needed to provide Gareth in order to achieve the visuals and the look and the style that he was after for the project. So Oren, we do want to go back to your your beginnings and your and your background, but since we're already on this path of talking about the creator and you specifically mm -hmm. had talked about you know the style and everything you want to do, we're gonna we're gonna keep going that direction. So yeah. I know it has been discussed ad nauseum that the FX3 yeah. was the camera and everybody is like, oh my God, they, you know, and of course Gareth, you know, in interviews has mentioned, you know, you could buy this at Best Buy and this is what we use to shoot the film. But it's a, it's a little more, it's a little more than that. People aren't going to achieve the same look by just going to Best Buy and grabbing this camera off the shelf and, and going to shoot. You guys, you know, full cinema lenses and a, a professional crew and lighting and everything else. But since it's been talked about, but we haven't talked about it yet, we might as well <laughs> have you tell us a little bit about, you know, the choice of, you know, using that particular camera and why and how you kind of built out your your camera system, your camera packages for, you know, getting everything you needed on this uh, on this film. I mean, uh, the camera choice kind of predated my involvement in the project, to be honest. Uh, Greg and Gareth had sort of already identified that camera earlier that earlier in that year of pre-production. And it, it came from a very simple place. Uh, Gareth is a, a shooter. Like Gareth is a film, is a cinematographer and he shoots a lot of his own footage and he's constantly um, like, Greg describes it as Gareth really sees the world through a camera lens. And, and he's just always kind of out and about with a camera, especially when he's prepping a project, looking through the viewfinder, looking through, looking at the monitor, framing up, um, searching for the imagery. Like on this project, he did extensive scouting uh, in Southeast Asia prior, before 
COVID even happened. And um, which the footage of which was actually edited into basically like the sizzle reel pitch video for uh, the way that the, uh, that he pitched to the studios and Gareth travels around. Gareth has always just been very open to an embracing of what's called quote unquote prosumer um, technology. Like he's just never really shied away from uh, off the shelf cameras that like you said, you can buy at Best Buy. Uh, and that extends to his first movie monsters, which he shot on the Sony EX three, which was, um, like a very early, you know, it was an HD digital camera, but it was basically a camcorder. It had a fixed built-in lens and yeah, it's a great camera. We, we had it at NYU. That was, I, I started at NYU in 2010 and that was, that camera was sort of right at its peak. So, uh, I, I was very familiar with it at the time. And on Gareth's location scouts and everything, he uses just a DSLR, like a pretty bog standard mirrorless. I think it's a Nikon. And so that's kind of just his filmmaking style. He's very used to shooting solo. He's very used to just having a camera in his hand without all the bells and whistles and the accoutrements uh, of like a bigger cinema package. And that was really how he wanted to make this film is he wanted to make this film in a way that evoked that filmmaking style and that feeling of just having a small camera in your hand um, and just kind of going out there and gathering footage, like almost documentary style. So that's where the FX3 came from. It was basically looking for like, is there a cinema level camera that has that form factor? That's the size and shape of a DSLR that you could just hold in your hand. And, and there is, and it's the FX3. Uh, and I, I think that camera came out the year that we started prepping. So it was like early 2021, that camera showed up on the market. And as soon as it did, I think they saw it at NAB or one of the um, uh, Cinegear probably, I don't think they went to NAB, but Cinegear. And and they were just like, this is that's it. This is it, this is the camera. So Greg had taken it out on some commercials to just test the imagery and test the workflow and determined that yeah the the image quality that it's capable of creating is on par with um other cinema cameras like it ticks all the basic boxes 15 stops dynamic range it can shoot raw it shoots 4k um and that's there you go uh, it was everything we needed all in this little package and obviously the camera has limitations you know we're not going to sit here and say like yeah yeah it's a perfect tool it's uh, everyone should just start shooting it. It's going to change your, blow your minds. Like there's limitations that we had to work around, but I think it was just, it was the camera that was perfectly suited for the way that Gareth really envisioned making this project. And and I think it was the camera that was needed like that, that kind of form factor. But as we keep saying, you know, two years from now, three years from now, there might be something else that is even better. That's the same idea, like small form factor, um, you know, little pocket sized camera that's capable of creating this like cinema level imagery. Uh, so, but, but might, maybe it might close the corners of the, the technical limitations of something like the FX3, but we'll see, you know, there's been no better commercial for that camera than <laughs> all of the press and media and all the discussion around that thing. I, new high school filmmakers around the world are rushing out to buy yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> So, so uh, to preface this next question, before this episode, we posted on Instagram for people to submit their comments to, to see if they 
wanted to ask you anything. And so right. I'm going to throw in a bunch of those throughout this episode. And so for our first question, Sean Allen Stone asked, are there any works or references that influenced your choices outside of the concept art for the feel of the film? Yeah, great question. Uh, we looked at a lot of films. Gareth is a cinephile at heart and he's a true filmmaker in that regard and, and knows cinema, loves cinema, classic cinema, um, probably more so than contemporary. Like, I don't think he watches a lot of modern movies, but he's very well versed in in the, the classics, especially in the sci-fi genre that we all kind of love and grew up with. So yeah, the influences on this film visually, especially are uh, very eclectic. Uh, it stems from, or it spans from the obvious, like there's a lot of Blade Runner in the movie. Uh, there's a lot of Alien, Ridley Scott. There's a lot of the original Star Wars, Lucas Star Wars 77. Uh, but there's also um, a lot of Terrence Malick. There's a lot of Baraka we looked at and talked about quite a bit. And Baraka, um, if people aren't familiar, is one of the most stunning films ever ever shot, one of the most visually beautiful films ever ever created. And it's directed by the cinematographer of Koyan Eskatsi. His name is Ron Frick, or, or maybe it might be Fricky. I actually don't know how to pronounce it, which is embarrassing. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a non-narrative film, but it's hard to call it a documentary because it's it, it doesn't really have a subject matter or a storyline it, it's an experimental film that's about place and it's about people and culture and it's filmed in um 70 millimeter film uh like all in all the most beautiful places in the world that that exist and when just depicting cultures and ceremonies uh and temples and and mountain vistas and and everything you can imagine in the most beautiful lyrical uh, style. Uh, so yeah, Baraka was a big influence, so much so that really our mission statement while kind of prepping and, and coming up with the, the visual approach to the project was like, if if there existed a film that was Baraka, that looked like Baraka, but had robots in it, something that had that sense of place and sense of visuals, but had sci-fi, what would be like the best film ever. and. Not, not saying that that's what we succeeded in making, but that was certainly the aspiration uh, and the visual um, inspiration. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And yeah. there's Apocalypse Now as well. There's some other films from the 70s that, you know, Bridge on the River Kwai is in there, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, it very, it very much felt like, uh, you know, when I was watching it, and, you know, if you have to tell somebody later on, you know, it's always like, it's this meets this. And I was yeah. like, well, it's yeah. it's Blade Runner meets platoon or full, full metal jacket you know apocalypse now it obviously it had that vietnam yeah. uh war era feel for, especially for certain shots with uh, you know the doors open on those uh, those vtol aircraft where you know mm -hmm. it's the classic vietnam shot out the side of the helicopter with the machine gun uh type of thing that you've seen in a bunch of you know flying over the rice paddies and so um exactly was mm -hmm. that was there any sort of obviously that's that, that's a visual influence on the mm -hmm. film was there sort of any um thought process story-wise of, you know, revisiting, you know, Vietnam in American history is a very, uh, you know, can be controversial issue at times with a, with a lot of people, even though it's been, you know, 50 years now since uh, since the war almost. Can you talk about what, are, are there any, any of the storylines that were, that were baked in that dealt with sort of referencing Vietnam besides the visual aspect? 
You know, funny enough, it, that's not something we ever really talked about consciously. It was all in the script. Um, to me, the the you know the metaphor and the parallels that that it's pulling from history were all very um, present. Like we never really needed to discuss it. Uh, and I also think it's, you know, the film ultimately is pulling from a lot of different concepts and a lot of different ideas and a lot of different periods in history. Like, I think there's a little bit of, you know, there, there's the Iraq war in there, the war on terror, there's Vietnam war. Um, but there's also like Isaac Asimov, you know, there's, there's uh, Philip K. Dick, like, it's, it's, at the end of the day, I think the film is in a good way, like a, a, a hodgepodge of different influences and visuals and ideas. Uh, and it's not, it doesn't set out to be a specific metaphor or specific allegory for like any past conflict. But I think the overall um, effect is, is one that evokes like a specific emotion and a specific emotional response to the stakes and to like the state of the world um, as it is it, it depicted in the film. Uh, and hopefully there's enough parallels and sort of anchors to like real world experiences that immerse the audience into the, the world of this film, which is ultimately the goal. Like, I think all of this is serves the purpose of um, creating a film that feels more believable and more grounded for an audience. And really all of our filmmaking choices were uh, stemmed from that desire as well. Like at the end of the day, every choice we made, the way to shoot the film, the camera, the location work, all of it, it was all designed to create something immersive and to create something believable for an audience. Uh, so yeah, I think the, the 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 kind of real world parallels are a part of that. They're a part of that tapestry of creating something that feels familiar and, and that we can relate to emotionally um, as an audience and connect to the characters. Yeah, and so speaking of framing this film, Another question we got was from Ethan Simi, who actually runs an A24 fan podcast, which is really fun. And I listen to, he didn't pay awesome. us for that. It's just a quick plug. <laughs> he asked, what's the most difficult that. part of framing a sci-fi world from an already existing physical space slash location? Because you shot this on location. And so what was the most difficult part of framing a sci-fi world from an already existing location? The most difficult part, I mean, there wasn't anything difficult about it. <laughs> that was, it was the opposite. I mean, that was, that was why we did it was because um, often, and, and this is something that Greg and Gareth had found from their past experiences. Often what becomes difficult when trying to create a sci-fi world is that typically films of this scale, like, like kind of uh, studio blockbusters, there's a lot of risk involved in 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 making any film of this size. Like there's a lot of a lot of money involved and a lot of risk. And in order to mitigate that risk, what studios will typically do, um, and filmmakers, and this is completely understandable why they would want to do this, is you do a ton of concept art, you do a ton of design work ahead of time, you do previs, you do um all of these uh um, all of this design work in order to like protect yourself as a filmmaker and as a studio. And you can say, well, here's our, here are our goalposts. Like this is, this is what we're trying to hit. And uh, once you, when you create all of those, all of that design work and you create that framework for you to work within, it actually ends up becoming 
a lot harder to to hit those goalposts sometimes or not harder but it takes a lot of work um and you actually end up spending like most of your work and time kind of chasing the uh designs that you've already had approved for example like you know uh, i don't know they share all the artwork with the executives and they all say yep yeah, this looks good let's make this movie uh and then you you spend a ton of time and resources and energy chasing those approvals like chasing what you what you have designed and then oftentimes that involves building huge sets and doing a, a, a ton of extensive previs, like I mentioned, and doing a lot of visual effects work uh, in advance of filming and shooting on green screens and, and figuring out foreground lighting and all of this stuff. And Gareth just really, really wanted to avoid all of that and design a movie backwards, which is actually the way he did his first film monsters which was shoot entirely on location without any visual effects necessarily designed maybe there's some early uh ideas like early sketch work that kind of thing but but he doesn't have specific like shots or designs in mind when he starts filming the movie and then once the film is edited once the film is shot on location entirely without necessarily taking into account visual effects uh and then edited then the design work starts. And, and when you're designing a film to footage that you filmed, uh, everything becomes a little easier. It just all falls into place because you're reacting to and you're responding to real locations, real geography, real shapes, geometry, architecture um, that were present on location. And all of that ends up influencing and inspiring the sci-fi of it all. Uh, yeah. And it, it it's just a much more organic process. It's 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 something, and it and the end result feels a lot more um, immersive and lived in. Uh, but also from a technical level, like the visual effects just look more real because they're they're so heavily based on plate photography, on real location plate photography. So it, you kind of end up getting the best of all worlds and. Gareth has a great metaphor that he uses to describe this process, which is that typically a film of this uh, scale involves a process of um, spending your pre-production drawing a bunch of targets on a wall. And then production is you take 20 steps back and then you just start throwing darts at the wall and you're trying to hit these targets. And sometimes you get close and sometimes you hit a bullseye and sometimes you miss and you know production is it's a very complicated um mechanism and it's 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 very difficult to always hit those bullseyes yeah and i think that's maybe why the film feels so yeah. kind of fresh and authentic and people mm -hmm. are responding to it so well they, they almost don't know why but the film just feels different than a lot of other films and i think it's because of that authenticity of shooting on location and i think you know yes. maybe maybe your indie filmmaker background where you know that's when you're an indie filmmaker uh, as i've been in the past you know that's what you do you don't have any other choice but to go shoot on location and figure it out as you go and then it, pr it probably you know expense wise for the film if you just are going in later and be like well this is the shot fill in the special effects as opposed to building tons and tons and tons of effect shots that may or may not end up in the film you know that has to keep the cost down a little bit uh, a little bit for the production too it does and that was also the big pitch for the for the film i mean when gareth was going around pitching the project uh you know if you look read the script and look at the concept art and everything i think anybody's first instinct would be like 
okay, looks cool. Um, who's gonna who's gonna spend three hundred million dollars on a non franchise, non IP, uh, you know, original script? Like that 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 doesn't exist. That kind of money doesn't exist. Uh, and and so part of part of all of this, the approach, the visual effects approach, the 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 filmmaking style. Part of the the concept of the way that we were making the film, the filmmaking style, the equipment, the visual effects approach, all of it was designed to a point where Gareth could go to a studio and say, "We don't need three hundred million dollars. We, we can do this for 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 sixty or seventy. Um, and our, our our end budget was around eighty mil, and that was all because during COVID. Uh, the estimate is like 25% of film budgets went towards COVID um, mitigation like efforts. So, you know, Gareth is out there saying, I think correctly, like we probably could have done it for less um, in, in different circumstances, but uh, uh, there's a chunk of that budget that went towards COVID. Uh, but yeah, it, it was definitely a huge money saver. And, and that was a big part of how he got the project greenlit in the first place. Oh, and to go back, sorry, to go back to the question, I guess, as I was answering it, I realized, I guess the challenge, the difficulty, the challenge um, of this approach is that it's risky. And the, 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 the previous approach that I described, uh, the way that films like this are typically made is less risky because all of the design work and all, all of that prep and previs and everything, as much as it adds costs and inflates budgets and, um, sometimes forces you into creative corners and all of that, um, is what we avoided by doing the film the way that we did it, but it it is an insurance policy and it it, it, it helps you mi minimize and avoid risk. And what we did was very risky and wasn't necessarily going to work. Like I think we had Gareth's test film uh, and we had, you know, his experience and Greg's experience to lean on and, 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 and the studio backed us and, Everybody was on board with the approach, all of the crew, all the department heads, but it was still like somewhat unproven that we could actually make the movie in this way. But thankfully we managed. It's risky. It was risky. And I think that's probably why people don't do it, you know, like don't really approach films this way typically. Yeah. And so kind of talking about this, like looking back now that the movie is out and you've done a lot of press for it already and you're here talking with us, I think a good question is from an audience who asked, his name is Matt Bastos, who I think you know, he asked, how has working on the creator changed your perspective and outlook on the filmmaking process and your craft of cinematography, and what will you take with you into the next project? Which, quick plug, by the way, Matt just shot a movie in Dallas, so keep an eye out for that. He did, uh, he did, and Matt, Matt in general is someone to keep an eye out uh, for um, in the cinematography world, he's a, he's a rising star. Uh, and I love everything he's doing. Um, and he's also a friend. So maybe I'm a little biased, but <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, great question. <clears throat> I think the biggest takeaway for me is there's a lot of inefficiencies in, in the filmmaking process, even on indie films. And what Greg and Gareth, their conversations and experiences was challenging the inefficiencies of, of filmmaking. Uh, and I think that's how we managed to keep costs down, but I also think that it opened up a lot of creative opportunities uh, that are all on screen in the film in ways that I've often, even on indie films in the past, felt 
somewhat limited by um, the box that filmmaking can be in and can put you in sometimes, the creative box. And sometimes you feel stuck in that box uh, because you have to hit certain targets or hit certain goals or do things a certain way based on how you plan them. And there's a freedom and a creative freedom to, to the way we approach this project that really changed the way I thought about filmmaking. Like I think coming from these indie films, you're often driven by your schedule. And, and on indie films, you know, we're talking like 20 days, maybe 25. And 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 you're still shooting the same length of a script. You know, a script is still 100 plus pages, 90 to 100, um, or maybe like 110, 120, depending on how you slice it. So you have to get the same amount of material, of footage, or at least of, of, of end result film, but in a much shorter span of time. And, and what I've found in the past is that often because your resources are so limited, uh, that kind of forces you into a very specific box of like, well, if the, if you have $2 million and 20 shoot days, this is how you need to make a film like that. And if you have $80 million, this is how you need to make a film at that scale. And if you have $150 million, this is how you need to make a film. And I think that like just challenging that approach and just questioning it in general at every point of the way and questioning those inefficiencies and questioning like, okay, well, you know, when we have um, heavy location work with uh, with special effects and um, props and extras and so on and so forth, even on, on like, let's say a smaller budget film, it's very understandable why you need a big footprint on set and a big support staff. But when you're shooting like a little scene with two people, um, that are just talking in a location that's very simply lit. Why do you need the whole crew? Like there's this concept on films, especially on, on lower budget films called skeleton crew. Like we're going to go shoot this with a skeleton crew. Uh, and that's like, take, you know, only the essentials, sound recordist, AD, like maybe one or two lighting people, bare minimum. And I think that this film really opened my eyes to even questioning like on certain days of a film, why don't we always shoot with a skeleton crew? Like, why do you even need the full crew on a day where you only need 10 people? So it's just things like that. You know, it's, it's not necessarily any one specific thing, but it's more just the idea of challenging and, and questioning, like, why do we need a full crew on, on this day? And, and maybe that would buy us more shoot days, or maybe that would buy us access to a better location for example, or whatever. And it's just thinking about how to deploy your resources a little bit differently. I mean, on this film, you know, the biggest thing that that all of this bought us was having Industrial Light and Magic be able to come in and do 1700 visual effects shots at for an $80 million movie instead of a $300 million movie. And it's like, we have the same number of visual effects shots as any big blockbuster, but it's at a fraction of the cost. And it's because we challenged and questioned like the way that things were typically approached. So yeah, I think that's, that was my biggest takeaway. And it's just um, approaching upcoming projects with, with an open mind and with um, an open mind to approach and to equipment and, and anything, it could manifest itself in different ways, but I'm excited to see how, 
how it will in upcoming films. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, obviously you moving forward now, you know, will probably take this approach with you where you're able to make those decisions and Gareth uh, will as well. Do you think, yeah. you know, studios and financiers or producers will be like, hey, look what they did with the creator. Why can't you do this? filmmaker xyz you know do you think this will have any kind of spillover into the industry whatsoever especially because a lot of people are cutting budgets now you know they're they're really trying to squish you know the budgets down everybody's you know trying to do things at at a cost but you know you see like you talked about some of these big 300 million dollar marvel films and everything else it's like do you really need everything that you have that full crew on all of these days is that really necessary everything every every single day i wonder I, i'm just curious you know, if, if that's going to spill over uh, into other projects moving forward. Yeah, we'll have to see. I, I mean, I will say uh, it's going to be hard to replicate because it requires, we were just, we were very lucky on this film. Like all of the circumstances that we had in place to, to make this, I, I mentioned before, it, this was a risky approach, but we really also had everything in place that we needed to mitigate that risk as much as possible. And what that involved for us was we had a director who was as visionary and as, you know, in tune with what he wanted and was as in control as he was as, as Gareth. And I think that that's a huge component, a massive component. Um, and we had New Regency, the studio that, that just backed him and they had his back and New Regency really have a strong history of backing auteur directors. Like they've made films with, uh, Inyaritu and Ridley Scott prior to that. And like their whole approach, uh, James Gray, like has been really um, about supporting directors and supporting what directors visions and directors approaches and trusting directors. And not to name any other studios, but I think that's, that's been a, that's a tricky thing. Like that is a, that is a big ask these days, but um but I, I think that's necessary for success. That's, that was necessary for success for us. And so, and I think that that was a big step. That was a big necessity for success for this approach to work because it it requires the studio to not question everything, every little thing and every decision. It, it, it requires them to trust the director and to trust the filmmaking team and to trust the crew. <clears throat> and they did. And then the other thing is, and I'm already kind of seeing this a little bit, which is which is unfortunate. But you know, I, I, I'm I'm worried a little that people will draw the wrong conclusions from from what we did, and and will make assumptions that are not actually true. The biggest one that I see is the assumption that oh, well, if we shoot on the FX3, you'll save money, and 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 so then a pro a producer could see that and say like, hey, why don't we shoot on the FX3? It'll save us money. And it's like, that's not why we did it. We, 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 we didn't choose that camera to, to, because it costs $4,000. And, and in fact, as you alluded to earlier in the podcast, like we had really nice lenses. We had a full equipment, uh, like accessory support package. We also had 10 camera bodies. We had um, a ton of support gear. We had a crew, like, I don't even necessarily think, I mean, I, I'm not an accountant and I haven't actually sat down and looked at the numbers, but I don't really think that saves us money. I don't think that saved us money on, on that, on that side, like renting an Alexa versus buying 10 FX threes and accessorizing them and everything. I don't know if that saved us money. Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't do it to save money. 
Like the, the, the place that we saved money was in the overall filmmaking approach. And the FX3 was a part of that approach. It was part of the, the, the technical baseline that enabled that approach, but it was, it, that was not the linchpin to the approach. So if somebody wants to approach a film or a TV show in the traditional way, which as I have been sort of alluding to, like has a lot of inefficiencies and has a lot of extra expenses and so on, and just swaps out, you know, an Alexa with an FX3, I do not think you're going to save money. <laughs> like, because that's, that's not the thing that does it. It's, it's the overall approach. And I hope that people adopt it. I hope that people think, start thinking outside the box and would see what we managed to do and, and say, Hey, why can't we do that? But um, I guess we'll see. I mean, like I said, it's risky and people don't like risk. So that that's, that's one reason why maybe, maybe this wouldn't be as, you know, widespread um, adoption wise as, as one would hope, because all of the decisions that you make on a bigger project um, in terms of development or in terms of having certain crew or equipment around or visual effects, like creating a bunch of shots that don't end up in the film, all that stuff is done. It's, it's not inefficient on purpose. You know, it's all done because it's, it's, risk mitigation and uh and and it's having stuff around just in case because you don't want to you don't want to be caught without a thing that you end up needing it's all an insurance policy it's one big insurance policy and so it's tricky it's tricky to approach a film the way that we did because it requires you know swimming without without the flotation devices like you just gotta dive in and hope that you float and hope that hope that you remember how to swim and 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 hope that the whole crew can swim <laughs> uh and uh yeah and 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 commit to those choices um and be open and allow some of the choices and the and the flaws and the mistakes or the things that you didn't get like embracing that and 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 putting that in the film and letting that guide decision making down the road like it's just it's a very fluid approach to filmmaking and it's it's not one that I think a lot of people are attuned to, but for us, it was, it was the right way to make this film. And it was the way that it's something that Gareth is very attuned to as a filmmaker. Uh, but yeah, I hope there's other people out there who try it because I, I do think the results are, can be really spectacular, but you know, we'll see if we'll see if any directors and, and studios want to want to take the challenge, <laughs> want to accept the challenge. Yeah, and so speaking about Gareth and like talking about your collaboration, um, Brandon Rivera wants to know, how do you prefer to communicate with directors to make sure there's solid collaboration? And I think this is a good question for up and coming directors and also cinematographers who are looking to find a partner or producing partner, whatever it is. And so again, just one more time, how do you prefer to communicate with directors to make sure there's solid collaboration? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've found that the the uh, ultimately what's most important, especially on a long form project, is to really get to know a director on a personal level. Uh, and once you really start to understand a person, you don't need to communicate that much because you have a deeper layer of understanding and you can start to think like they think and you you start to see the world the way that they see it. And 
so that was that was really what was important for me on this on this project, especially because I was stepping into a world that was already so fleshed out and so envisioned by Gareth that um, yeah, the most important thing for me was to really understand um, understand what what he how he saw the world and how he saw this world, but also just how he saw filmmaking in general. And um, and that just involved spending time with him, honestly. And talking about not not even necessarily this project, like talking about other movies, you know, and talking about what he likes about Blade Runner and, you know, what, what he likes about uh, Star Wars, uh, understanding him at, at that level. On this project, especially, um, Gareth was also operating the camera, which I don't think we mentioned, um, but is an important detail. And he was also a producer on the on the project. And so um, he had so much on his plate that my goal, like every day was basically like, how can I talk to him the least? Like, how can I not add to his already like overbearing um, day to day? Like he has to answer questions from a million different people. He has to operate the camera. He has to talk to the crew. He has to talk to the production designer and costume designer and makeup artists and and produce the film and everything. So my entire approach was like, how can I take stuff off of his plate? How can I like lighten his load by understanding the filmmaking approach and understanding how he sees this project and what he likes and how he sees the world and 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 being able to, to kind of be there for him essentially uh, and take that stuff off without having to over communicate it. And Greg, Greg feels this is the same. Like it's, it's, it was really this mind meld between the three of us. And, and that's what we really spent a lot of time doing in prep was, was creating that alignment and creating that understanding. And that I, we would call it the taste alignment. We, we had to align taste. Um, so that was the biggest thing. And I think that, I think that that is a really, really important takeaway. Um, in terms of the DP director relationship in general for, for, for other filmmakers and even for me moving forward with other directors. Well, um, so yeah, hopefully that answer makes sense. It's, it's a little ephemeral, but. I know. Well, you're saying that Gareth operated, um, you know, during the film as well. Did, did you also operate like, were there, how many at times did you, was it single camera? Were you guys using multiple cameras at all times? Did you operate as well as Gareth? It was almost entirely single camera. Uh, we, we played a second camera, maybe 20 days out of the shoot. Uh, and I operated the second camera. It was mostly for bigger set pieces and that kind of thing. Speaking about Gareth operating a camera, since Gareth was operating and moving at such a fast pace, how did that influence your filmmaking decisions? And this is from Corner La Pizza. <laughs> I don't know if that's just I don't know. someone who's obsessed with pizza or if that's like an actual <laughs> pizza chain. Yeah, now, now, I'm, now I'm hungry. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it influenced everything. I mean, the entire filmmaking approach was based on wanting to move that quickly and, and not wanting to ever spend more than 15 minutes on anything uh, in terms of setup. So it, it, it influenced the grip equipment that we used. We, we embraced um, sort of more, quote unquote, again, that word prosumer grip, grip equipment. Uh, we used the Kessler uh, shuttle dolly instead of like a big chunky um, Fisher or Chapman dolly, which you typically see. We used a um, powerscopic scissor crane, which was, it's like a portable um, uh, 
scissor crane uh, me mechanical that um, you know a grip can just carry and kind of plunk down in, in a position instead of a bigger techno crane or anything like that. It influenced our lighting approach, which had to be a lot more like 360 lighting a space and creating a lighting environment for Gareth to, to kind of explore uh, in, in terms of finding shots. Um, and we had to create and adapt like a malleable lighting uh, approach that was um, not like on a shot by shot basis, but was a lot more fluid and reactive to what the environment was doing, uh, what Gareth was doing. Uh, and it's a lighting style that's very naturalistic and, and based on practical lights as opposed to movie lights. All of so all every decision was made to minimize our footprint and to keep us moving quickly. Um, so yeah, it affected everything. It affected absolutely everything. It affected makeup. It affected visual effects. Like every department was had to adapt to that kind of filmmaking approach because Gareth does not want to slow down and grind the film to a halt to wait for something that could take an hour. If, if, if that would happen, then he would do one of two things. Either we would just film something else while we were waiting, or he would pivot and think of a different approach that, that would take less time. That's great. Yeah. So like I said, just a couple more questions uh, left. Uh, Janielle Negron wanted to know, it's a pretty simple question, but you know, is there a, a, a favorite day of shooting that if you could go back and just do that day over again, because you enjoyed it mm -hmm. so much, like what would that particularly be on set was just one day you had so much fun you were like this was great if every day was like this <laughs> great question i think that it was probably a few days but there was a stretch of the film relatively early on where we were filming all the stuff with joshua and maya at their house in the opening of the of the film and then there's a bunch of flashback material that also takes place in and around that house uh and and involves also them running out to the beach and and also the the special forces kind of coming out of the water all that stuff all of that stuff was filmed at uh, this place called Rally Beach, which is in the south of Thailand in an area called uh, Krabi, Peng Na Bay. And it's, you see it on screen. I mean, it's just paradise. Like it's just, it is the quintessential white sandy beach, beautiful cliffs, like crystal blue waters. Uh, and so we stayed there, you know, we stayed right on that beach. Like our our accommodations for that week were, two doors down from the house where we were filming. Uh, so, you know, every day you wake up and your commute to set is walking barefoot a hundred meters down a sandy beach. And then you're at your little filming location. And then at wrap, you know, you go in for a night swim in the, in the waters and there's like uh, iridescent algae uh, at night and I mean it was just it was just a week in paradise and and we were also making a film at the same time that was sort of happening in parallel while we were like just enjoying this vacation essentially so I would go back to that that was the that was the highlight of the film for sure and uh, you're writing an entire script now based just on that location <laughs> for 25 days that you can just spend there right <laughs> pretty much I mean hilariously Gareth wrote a lot of the film in that house because it's a rental property. So he stayed there like years ago. I mean, 2017, maybe uh, in the very house that we filmed in and wrote a lot of the script there. So I think he probably had a similar thought process of like, hmm, maybe we should come back here <laughs> and at least film some of the movie in this in this spot. And we did. <laughs> yeah. So last question um, to wrap things up for Maced Elizondo. Is co-DPing a film something you'd like to do again in the near future? Yes, 100%. Um, 
it was it was such a beautiful process and to me the and and i can speak for greg on this too because he's he and i've spoken about this and, and he's said as much in public like the collaborative nature of filmmaking is really maybe our most our favorite aspect of this whole job like if if we were interested in just pure aesthetics and visuals um we would have become still photographers because that's a very pure aesthetics based job and it's solo and 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 uh, it's 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 certainly a lot easier because you're only dealing with one other person and maybe you have an assistant and a film set is hard you're dealing with hundreds of people and everyone has to coordinate and collaborate but but to 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 us to me also uh specifically that's the most beautiful part of filmmaking is everybody kind of coming together and contributing to this larger vision and contributing to this project and and everybody's artistry and everybody's contribution gets to kind of be equal um and we're all adding to this bigger picture so the co-dp thing is is really an extension of that like being the cinematographer can often be a very isolating thing, kind of going back to the photography idea. Um, and so being able to share that with somebody and share a vision, share uh, an approach, share mutual goals, bounce ideas off of each other, um, re rely on one another's experience, um, workshop things, like just think out loud and even just splitting logistical duties. I and mean, there's a lot for a cinematographer to do on a set. It was, it was great. And uh, I mean, it only works if you're aligned, obviously you cannot be in a situation where there's two DPs that are not aligned and then, and then you're just going to fight all the time. But um, our collaboration was really beautiful. And I think, uh, you know, Greg and I, as I mentioned earlier, know we knew each other before, and I think have had a mutual understanding of each other's work already. So that, that baseline was already there, but I think I think it was incredible, and I I wish more people did it. I would love to do it. It'll come down to cost. It's like nobody's going to want to pay for two cinematographers is the only problem. But 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 Greg has done this before. I mean, this is really how he structured Mandalorian uh, between himself and Baz Idlewine. They um, basically co-DP'd it, and you know the way that episodic TV works is each person ends up getting assigned credit on different episodes, but they're they really collaborated on the entire show. Uh, on all of the episodes together. And uh, so Greg Greg has been a, a big proponent of that and, and of that approach and of thinking outside of the box, again, going back to that idea as well of how we approach filmmaking and how we approach collaboration um, and, and what these roles really mean and how to delineate them. So I would love to do it again, absolutely. Uh, and I hope more people do. It's, it's a beautiful collaboration and um, it it just requires a little bit of ego death, and but I think that that's, I think that's an, an ultimately a really good thing and a necessary thing for filmmaking. I would say and for art in general, especially collaborative art across the board. So that that's a big, yeah, that was also a big takeaway from from the project. But um, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Co-DPing, big fan. More people should do it. <laughs> Well, Oren, we have to wrap up, but you know, we definitely could talk for another hour. We didn't get into your background at all. Yeah. We didn't talk about what you, what you've got coming next. Yeah. So maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll talk about doing another episode where we've covered the creator. We can talk more about Oren and what uh, and what you're doing and what uh, you know what your vision for the future and future projects are. But thank you so much for being on the Dallas Film Podcast. We love having you. It was a great conversation. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was great to chat.
And that wraps up another episode of the Dallas Film Commission podcast. We hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes journey. We'd like to express our gratitude to our incredible guests who shared their valuable insights and stories with us and all of you. Whether you're a budding filmmaker, an old pro, or a movie enthusiast, Dallas is a place where we make things happen. Be sure to visit the Dallas Film Commission's website for more information, resources, and opportunities to get involved in this thriving industry. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes filled with great guests, inspiring stories, and industry secrets. And cut. Thank you.